I want to make this clear. It's not a small thing to leave a faith tradition. It is a huge decision because I owe so much, we both do, mm-hmm. to the Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Britt Bowlerjack, and for the next few months, we're going to be interviewing millennial pastors who have transitioned out of the Church of the Nazarene. These are beautiful and at times heartbreaking stories that I hope you will receive in the spirit that they are given, one of deep care and concern for the Church of the Nazarene, this community of believers that we are a part of. As a Nazarene clergy member myself, it is my hope and prayer that these stories will be um, the catalyst for beautiful conversations to come about who we are and where we're going and how we can better embody um, who God is calling us to be. Hey friend, I wanted to pause here for a moment and add a couple of production notes before we get started. For context, all of these interviews were recorded between November 2021 and February of 2022. I asked everyone I could think of and several friends of friends as well. And for every person that said yes to an interview, at least one other said no. At the end of this period, I had a wide range of interviews of millennial colleagues who'd left the Church of the Nazarene anywhere from 2010 all the way till 2021. When I started the project, I assumed I would release them in the order I was recording. That way you could hear the evolution of how I approached the project throughout the season. You would have noticed that I became more apologetic, but also more bold to ask some awkward questions. As time went on, though, I realized it would make way more sense for us to listen to these interviews in the order that each pastor left. There's an evolution to be heard here as the current events of each time move towards the present. But more on that in the conclusion episode at the end of this season. And finally, I want you to know... I'm not a professional podcaster. These episodes were recorded in my spare time, often late at night, often with borrowed equipment I wasn't 100% sure how to use, and all of them were recorded over Zoom. (laughs) All that to say, the sound isn't perfect, but neither am I. So please, treat sound issues with grace, and hopefully they won't be too distracting from the stories. I hope you can tell that many of these episodes were sacred space for me, and I hope they will be for you as well. All right, that's enough context. On to the interviews. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bullerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Tyler Brinkman. Welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> um, so I want to start at the very beginning and ask you, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? I started there in Cradle Nazarene, fifth generation Nazarene on both sides of my family. Wow. Um, my dad says that my great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother was the very first woman ordained in the Church of the Nazarene as a yes. denomination. I don't know that I believe that because there were already ordained women at Pilot Point. Mm, mm. And so I I'd need to get more information and then mm. check with Stan. Maybe we can say like one of the first. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I said that and he's like, no, it was the first. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, so tell me uh, the story of your call to ministry. Sure. So honestly, as long as I can remember, I have wanted to, preach 
Mm. From the time I was like three and four. Wow. You know, I went, I grew up right outside of Nashville. And so there were several um, professors at Trevecca who attended my church. And I remember my mom and dad one day talking about who is my age and was in my Sunday school class. And they're like, yeah, his dad's a theologian. I'm like, what's a theologian? And they kind of explained it to me. And I'm like, that sounds like the coolest job. <laughs> um, and that's how I was in like six, six as a six and seven year old. Um, what I would say was that I felt a definitive call to ministry when I was 16. Mm. I was at a summer camp at Duke for air quote gifted students, which I will say was very different than the church camps that I would have gone to. Mm. But I remember having a moment where I'm 33 now, so I guess this is age appropriate, but listening to the song Hold On by Good Charlotte on my mix CD. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I just felt this overwhelming presence and certainty. Mm. And so I went to the dorm room that I was staying in. And I got down on my knees and prayed by the side of my bed. And it was just this idea of going and giving hope to people who don't have it. Mm. Um, because my own history, even at that age, was filled with a lot of clinical depression, a fair amount of suicidal ideation mm. to a certain degree. Um, then just trauma. And, and so I felt like I could connect with people who don't feel like they have much hope and recognizing how much hope there is in the gospel. And I honestly will say that I am not certain that I would be here today if I hadn't accepted that call mm. and spent much of my college and later years studying things like theology. Theology saved my life. Mm. And so that's a both very specific and a very broad calling. Yeah. It's not a calling to a specific position. It's a call to a theological orientation mm. of hope. That's beautiful. Um, so kind of tell me the this, this story of, of ministry for you. Where did you go from there? I have struggled with churches ever since I was a kid mm. um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I ended up having to leave my church when I was in high school because of, uh, honestly, a combination of family trauma and drama and toxic ministers and my family's legal protection mm. it was it was a mess yeah. um and then you know 
in college and a little while after college, I got pretty in, I got real involved with a, just a local, you know, Nazarene church um, in the area, and it was it was a mixed bag. Mm. I got to work with the very first time I ever did anything to do with kids ministry, and that was not for me. Not your jam. No. But I was there, and I was able to help out. Um, and I got connected. I end up, you know, um, as one of the youth workers um, and the youth director that I was kind of serving under at the time. She became one of my closest friends, mm. which was really, really lovely. Um, and she decided that another youth worker and I were going to co-teach Sunday school. And so she was like, yeah, you're going to do this. And I was like, I mean, I guess like I can just come up with it on my own. Like I have the schooling for it. She's like, no, no. She also was trying to get me to date that youth worker. Mm. And that worked out. <laughs> Currently upstairs. Nice. Having put our toddler to bed. No. So, um, and we got married in that church, mm. um, even though we had kind of left it after some issues, kind of was on the church board for a couple of years and was the NYI director, which was, you know, the, the youth pastor kind of position for a year. Um, and it was right around that time when a whole bunch of things with the youth group blew up. Um, and I was not, I didn't have the experience to really manage it well. Mm. And I wasn't given sufficient guidance. Mm. And so I did the best I could. Yeah. And I don't blame myself for anything that I did then. I don't think I made any like huge, terrible decisions, but it was it was not great. Mm. And I knew myself to know that like if I stay here I'm gonna feel like I need to fix this church. Mm. And that's not my responsibility. And so I ended up making the decision to leave. Um, and I had had my local license there. Um, my wife and I still got married there. Um, and it was fortunate. One of the professors at was my children's pastor growing up. Mm. He was the one who baptized me. Uh, he was, he and his wife are probably the closest friends my parents have ever had. Mm. And so it was really thankful that he was the one who got to officiate our wedding. Mm. Um, we struggled to find a church. We got married, and then we're like, hey, we have some friends. And so why don't we move to So less than three months after getting married, we I found a job, and we went. Mm. Um, and that church was really healing for us for a little while. Mm. Um. 
I intentionally didn't get super involved right away because I didn't want to just run right back into more issues and the church had a you know a full-time youth pastor I didn't want to get in his way mm-hmm. he was a good guy he's a friend of mine um, and so I was just like okay I'll like kind of get back in kind of slowly mm. so eventually got another local license but then it turned out that I had filled it out like two months after so it wouldn't be a whole church year so then I had to do it again and then you know eventually got my district license and was kind of a unpaid part-time pastoral staff and say in name only or in a lot of different ways um, and there's some of the things that I did there especially because I was doing my like seminary internship there um, that I'm really kind of proud of um, some of the things I was able to collaborate on and, and do it helped that my the whole reason we moved to was because my best friend from college his wife is on staff at that church and so it helps um and so we she and i were able to collaborate and do you know some different things and you know my job was to my kind of on a my official title was pastor of community connections and so it was basically just trying to get the congregation more engaged in our local community and think more systematically about what it means to be in community because mm. as it turns out white middle-aged people two-thirds of whom have a college degree is not actually the totality of like the local community of shocking sure um and so you know and so there were some there were some good conversations that came as part of that and some things that people were more interested in than i would have expected hmm. so i went to for my seminary i went to anabaptist mennonite biblical seminary and as a part of kind of the mission of Mennonite Church USA, you know, they're specifically and explicitly committed towards the work of anti-racism um, and undoing the doctrine of discovery. Mm. And so as a part of that work, one of the things that they had us do at the very like orientation, very first week was to take in, an intercultural competency awareness assessment Mm. it was administered it was administered by the school's intercultural and i can't talk intercultural competency and undoing racism team because they have someone who like that's her full-time job wow so is just that and she is everything that you would want in that position which is a Mm. lively educated 
articulate Trinidadian woman. Mm. And so I got connected with her because I already knew her and end up having, you know, with the permission of the senior pastor and basically kind of came and did an assessment of how ready do you think our church is to be willing to really actually go through some of these conversations and some of these issues like Um, anti-racism conversations okay yeah which she was more optimistic than i was but she also she ended up presenting her findings to the entire church board because i mean we did pay her to do you know to do an assessment so she came you know for two weeks two sundays in a row um just to kind of get a feel and to kind of see and you know she said you know people were very friendly you know people immediately asked her like oh you know hey come sit with me and all this she she did say she did intentionally wear her absolute biggest earrings um just to see and yeah someone of course grabbed them and was like oh these are really cool mm. yeah um um and people, and so that actually got the church board into a kind of a conversation about microaggressions. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they decided because it was kind of at, in the middle of the church year, the, they decided at the time that they didn't feel like they had the budget to go forward with that, but they wanted to revisit it later. Mm. Um, which is understandable. I don't know how much they really want to revisit it. Um, And I eventually left. It was right about two years ago. I know that because two years ago was the baptism of my son, who was about almost three months old at the time. And we were going to have him baptized at our church by our friend who was the children's pastor. Um, and she was let go. And I could say a lot more, but... That's probably another podcast. <laughs> yeah. And, and they it was kind of funny though because my wife and i all of our family lives out of town so we had to like schedule you know baptism like yeah we're gonna be doing it people had already booked hotel rooms and she was let go and i had already kind of had one foot out the door mm. and i was just like yeah, no i'm done like i'm done and so we couldn't really rearrange the date so our Son was almost assuredly the first infant ever baptized at the Mennonite Seminary. <laughs> oh, that's um, precious. Which I was really gracious that they were, you know, fine with. We were like, hey, we, this situation happened. We'd like to reserve one of the chapels on a Sunday morning. And they're like, yeah, sure. And they're like, now it is going to be for a baptism. So can you like just check to make sure no one's going to have an issue with it? Yeah. Just, and no one did. 
and I'm not, I'm I'm kind of proud of that. Yeah. It also fits me. Mm. Um that was also the last time I preached. Mm. Which I realized yesterday. Um when it was kind of a defense of infant baptism mm. and just articulating what that means. You know, for my wife and I and you know more broadly theologically mm. um can i can I ask a follow up question about the story yeah. um so you said you mentioned you went to an Anabaptist seminary did I get that right? Talk mm-hmm. to me about the the decision to go there or, or what was it that it that drew you to that place They're very very focused on social justice mm. So I actually went to the school of John Howard Yoder, which is a mixed bag. Sure. Yep. Um, I will say um, that the school has done a lot over the last 10 years to really kind of wrestle with the legacy that he's had on them as a school, Mm. including, you know, service of confession and repentance um, from, you know, the seminary, you know, the board of trustees and the mm-hmm. seminary president, like starting from the very top, Yeah. even though they weren't there when those things happened, mm-hmm. they still recognized the need for collective confession and repentance. It's mm, beautiful. Yeah. And so... Honestly, I had been debating between getting a Master's of Social Work or a Master of Divinity. Mm-hmm. I decided on November 9th, 2016, I was going to go to seminary. It just happened to be the day after the election of Donald Trump. No, no, um, no connection there or... No, no, none at all. It definitely wasn't after reading an article that said 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Mm. It was definitely not because of that. Um, And so, but yeah, so I, I went there and every class, every student, every prof, issues of social ethics were built in from the ground up. It's awesome. Yeah. I was I'm really thankful for that. Mm. It really helped me get through the last four or five years. Sure. Yeah. Um when was the first time you thought you might not end up staying in the Church of the Nazarene? Probably sometime while I was in seminary. Mm. Um I don't know that there was a specific single instance. It had just been kind of the recognition of like, I don't really fit in with a lot of Nazarenes. Mm. What, what did you mean by that? Like what, what did that mean to you? Well, I'm a lot more progressive and I'm air quotes. People, yeah. Air quotes because people can't see me when they're listening to a podcast. Yep. Um, oh no, I'm just kind of different. I'm just kind of odd in general. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just kind of weird. Like, in all honesty. (laughs) 
I, I, to, in fairness, uh, to give like one example, like in September, I, I did my own like neuropsych evaluation, and the, and the neuropsychologist is like, "Yeah, you are almost like assuredly on the autism spectrum." Mm. And so I am kind of just a little weird, and people don't always know how to like get me. Mm. And so for a long time, I just thought like. I just don't really fit in with a lot of Nazarenes just because I'm just kind of weird in general. But it became increasingly apparent over time that it was more than just that. Yeah. Especially once becoming more disenchanted with a lot of like American evangelicalism mm. and the way that it's theology is harmful you know at, at the end of the day I'm not always great at remembering this but thinking of my call as a call towards proclaiming and embodying hope mm. do I think that the institution of the Church of the Nazarene is going to be a place where I can definitively make that proclamation. Mm. And over time, it just became apparent more and more that it just wasn't going to happen. Mm. Do, you, do you mind me asking what made you feel that way? I mean, ultimately, it was... A lot of Nazarenes, you know, acquiescence to particular brands of American partisan politics um, and also just the recognition that I am 100% LGBTQ affirming mm. and I've always prided myself on being as transparent as possible mm. and I can play semantics I can play that game really really well um, my wife just gave me a thumbs up <laughs> but I I don't want to live there mm. like I want to just be able to say this is what I think mm. And I knew that the way that I would think about some of those kinds of issues would be seen as a threat. Mm. Um, and, you know, for a long time I was like, well, you know, I can keep some opinions to myself and let them out, of, you know, the right instances and, and those kinds of things. And then, you know, I knew within... 24 hours of finding out that my wife and I were going to have a baby that I was going to have to leave within a few years. Because mm. I wanted to be able to tell my kid from the time before they could speak that God loves everyone and that the image of God can be found in all kinds of people. Yeah. 
and kids don't have a filter and they shouldn't mm. um i didn't want to have to worry about my career prospects wondering what my kid would say if he said something to the wrong person there goes bye-bye to any kind of ministerial career but i also wasn't willing to be the kind of person like okay well you know just don't ever say that you know dad and mom think this way just just don't tell people because that kind of pressure is not fair yeah. and it's harmful mm. and i wasn't going to do that to my kids mm. And so at the end of the day, I kind of had to choose between my identity as a Nazarene or my identity as like a dad. Mm. And that might be a little melodramatically put, but that's kind of how it felt. Um, and in one sense, it was the easiest decision because I wasn't going to put my kids in that position. Was there another sense in which it was hard? Yeah. It doesn't help that, you know, that was right before the pandemic started. And so I've only, you know, that baptismal service was February 9th, 2019. I've only been to one church service since then. Mm. It was out of an abundance of caution because of having an infant and then a toddler and, yeah. you know, and then not being connected to a congregation. It's like, do we want to go visit? Maybe we'll like this church. But more than likely, we're just going to expose ourselves to COVID. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a grief. I was Nazarene before I was Tyler. Mm. I mean, quite literally. <laughs> I was in Nazarene churches before I was born, before I was given a name. And I'll always be Nazarene. And I remember one of my peers at my seminary, I said that one time, and he's from Chile and had, he had been Baptist before, and he's like, why? Why would you always be? And I was just like, he's like, because he found a lot of, you know, freedom once he left, you know, the kind of, his identity as a Baptist. And I just said, you know what? He was like, I just can't escape it. It's just who I am. You know, I'm hoping to serve in other churches and denominations at some point in the future. And they won't be part of the Church of the Nazarene. But, like, I'll be honest, I'm still Nazarene. Yeah. <laughs> More than anything else. Mm. One of my professors, when I graduated from seminary you know he's uh he's a mennonite 
and uh, he studied at a Wesleyan school for a little while. And he said, you know, sometimes Tyler comes across as like a real like radical theologian, but then when you listen to him more, you just realize he's just Wesleyan. <laughs> and that's a hundred percent true. Mm-hmm. I just that's just who I am. Mm. Much to many of my classmates' annoyance. People learned a lot about Wesley while I was there. Mm. <clears throat> um, what has God been doing in your life and ministry since then? I don't really know. I mean, to be honest, like I said, I haven't been to church in like a couple years. Yeah. I'm hoping to get back into, we just moved. Mm. And there's um, a United Methodist Church. That's a mile and a half away. That is a part of the Reconciling Ministries Network. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're 100% LGBT affirming. Um, and so our hope is is to go and give them a give them a try. Mm. Um, partly this has been like we just haven't had the time and energy to go and explore because we've still been moving. Right. But mostly uh, the way that I usually encounter God most these days is just through the friends that I have, pretty much all of whom I've met through various Nazarene Facebook groups. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I am so incredibly thankful for them. Um, and just how life-giving those groups have been at times. Not that they're always like that, because they're not. (laughs) But some of the relationships are deeply, profoundly meaningful and are people that I actually feel like when they talk about what God is doing in their life, it doesn't just seem like, I'm going to use Bonhoeffer's word of cheap grace. And when I have the time to read theology, I love writing and reading. And I've been trying to do more of that lately. Mm. So I have a chapter of a that's going to be published, which is kind of exciting sometime Ooh. here. So in a volume on a volume on intersectional perspectives and trauma theology. Wow. So I wrote a for independent study. I wrote a like a transgender centered trauma theology while I was in seminary. Mm. That's what I was doing during my paternity leave. I mean, I was also taking care of, like, the baby. Right, right, sure. But I was also doing that. Nice. Um, Okay, so let me ask you, um, how might we, and I think I mean we, the Church of the Nazarene at that point, um, how might we have made a more hospitable place for you, for your ministry in our denomination? Learning how to listen. Mm. What do you mean by that? Tell me more. Oftentimes, people thought 
that I was only interested in playing a kind of theological police. And that term was used at me mm. a few times. When really I was just trying to do things that would advocate for more inclusivity, you know, of saying like, oh, well, this kind of sexist theology that you're spewing is actually not Nazarene. It conflicts with our what we actually think as a denomination. Mm. That would be taken to being, you know, playing the theological police. Mm. Let's just listen. Let's listen to who we are. Yeah. Who who we have been. Mm. You know, the funny thing is, is for the most part, even now, I don't know that there's any parts of the articles of faith in the manual that I would be like, mm, I really disagree with that. Mm. Um, I think some of the articles of faith are wonderfully worded to make room for what we like to brag about as our big tent, but of just recognizing that the things that we say about ourselves are more based on the stories that we that we tell about ourselves than any kind of historical fact. You know, I think of my dad saying that, you know, his great-grandmother was the very first Nazarene woman ordained. I have doubts as to the historicity of that event mm. as he articulated it. But when it comes to shaping his own experience with the church and his own identity as a Nazarene, as a person and his family growing up, it sounds like that was quite formative for him. Mm. And so even if that historical fact might not be 100% correct, it's a story we still need to listen to. Mm. And what happens when we bulldoze over the other people's stories, especially for people who might tell them a little weirdly? Mm people who seem a little off-kilter. Bulldozers are useful. Sometimes we need to tear things down, but they're also pretty indiscriminate. Maybe we should be more careful about what we're tearing down. Mm. There are lots of things I think that can and should be torn down, but the identity of a Nazarene, thinking of what good can come out of that, mm. that's not something that needs to be torn down that notion that well it's not a notion it's a question of what good can come out of that if that were asked by churches in a self-reflective manner of understanding that they're so lowly they're so just ugh, and what kind of respectability can come out of that and recognizing that by listening to other people's stories, that respectability is not at all a useful criterion for the gospel, mm. and certainly not for a holiness people. Thank you for sharing that.
um, what, what words of wisdom or encouragement might you have for millennial clergy that are still in the church of the Nazarene? Stay safe. That would be a word of wisdom rather than encouragement, I suppose. Um, so as for encouragement, I think I would just go back to what it means to be Nazarene. That same thing. What good can come out of that? Because most of the time, most of the pastors I've known, there is a lot of struggle. And there are times when they think to themselves, well, what good has come out of my ministry? Mm. And I think it's a good thing that that question is genuinely asked. I think when we go for easy answers of, you know, programs and numbers, we don't actually end up asking ourselves what good has been done. And so I think as long as we can continue to ask the question, what good can come out of Nazareth, I think we're in a good place. Because holiness, at the end of the day, is not about effectiveness. And there are times when people living holy lives have been entirely ineffectual. I mean, I wouldn't really say that Jesus is a model for success. Because he isn't. Like, the dude's a failure. Mm. Thanks be to God. Um, and so what I would say for encouragement is um, be Nazarene. Mm. Believe in holiness. Believe that the Spirit can actually transform people's lives and the communities people live in. That it's not just a product of religious manipulation, at least not always. That sometimes when you're able to look beyond, between the normal minutia of everyday life, you'll recognize that something sacred is happening. Mm. And that a lot of times, as much as we want to talk about holiness, you know, we see it as being a kind of pious devotion, when really holiness is a whole lot more boring than that. Holiness is getting up at stupid o'clock in the morning because my wife has to go to work and now I'm responsible for watching the toddler and I don't want to because I'm tired and I'm not a morning person. Mm. And trying to not be a butt about it. <laughs> not always very successful. You know, if I'm talking hypothetically here, just. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that is holiness. Mm. You know, there's a saying in activist circles, everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. Oh, yes, we say that a lot at our house. <laughs> that seems likely. That seems like something you would... The little I know about your house, that sounds accurate. You, everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes, myself included. 
Tyler, what, what would you want people to know about this journey for you? Is there anything else that you want to, that you want to say? I guess I would just say that even for people who are called to proclaim hope, sometimes hope is a thing that is very difficult to grasp, Mm. but try to do it anyways. Mm. What's giving you hope these days? That's a good question. Um, the, the idea that I might have a, a new church that I might fit in at, mm. even I haven't been yet, but just at least there's a place that's like, this sounds like I, it could be a good fit. Yeah. Which I don't think I've ever said that about a church before. Because I've always just kind of gone into a church knowing like, I'm not going to be a great fit, but like, we're just kind of do what I can anyways. Mm. So, my wife, my son, they give me hope. Yeah. They're good people, and I'm better because of them. Mm. And I'm grateful for them, even when all three of us are being a bunch of butts and being in a bad mood. I'm I'm glad that you're in a place that gives you hope with people that give you hope. Yeah. And thanks for taking the time. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. My pleasure. Since we love millennials so much on this podcast, we thought it would be appropriate to promote our fellow millennial authors. Here's one now. Hey, Millennial Pastor Podcast listeners. I'm Ryan Fasani, a millennial pastor, a farmer, and an author in the Pacific Northwest. My experience is that the church is long overdue in learning to hold suffering, grieve well, and wrestle honestly with doubt but we probably don't need another how-to book. My memoir, Consuming Hope, Father, Son, and Four Days to Live, is less an instructional guide and more a backstage pass to a modern-day crucifixion story. Condensed into four heart-wrenching days, Consuming Hope is a rare and intimate look into the final stage of my father's battle with ALS. A few years ago, I stepped away from full-time ministry to seek renewal. I didn't expect to be faced with my father's imminent death. In those final hours of vulnerability and struggle, he and I experienced nothing short of a life-altering miracle. And of course, my renewal was not what I expected. Support this author 
and our podcast by clicking the link in the description. Thank you. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Britt Bullerjack. Our editor is Caden Barksdale. And original music was done by Andrew Jones. This podcast is part of the Millennial Pastor Podcasting Network. For more podcasts like it, please visit themillennialpastor.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can join us on the next episode of the Millennial Pastor Podcast.